I'm going to read it before we jump into it. We'll uh, read verses 1 through 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in all and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So I have very intentionally over the last few months prayed both publicly in front of everybody and then even privately that God would open our eyes to the wonderful things that are contained uh, in his word. And I think... 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 uh, may very well be a part of God answering that prayer. Uh, when we say that we are grounded in the Word, that we are devoted to the Word, you know, some people will say, well, what about love and what about evangelism and what about fellowship and all those things? And, and what I'm, I'm very intentionally trying to lead us in is that the Word of God is the basis for all of those things. The Word of God reveals Christ to us. It reveals how we should love. It reveals how we should evangelize. It reveals how we should give. And there's a philosophy of life and ministry there that says that we don't gather here on Sunday morning. This is not the high point of our week. This is the start of our week. This is not the closest we ever get to God. This is where we come and we hear God's Word and then we proceed to know Him out of that. If you are a person who reads the Bible in the morning or some other time in the day, that is not the high point spiritually of your day. That is the foundation of your day. And so the word is our foundation. And by the grace of God, we are exposed to these things and we get up and we do what it says. So we are moving into a different section of 2 Corinthians. It's taken us a while after seven chapters of hearing about the struggle that Paul has had in ministering to the Corinthians, he shifts his instruction to giving. And you might think, really, Paul? I mean, giving is kind of a difficult subject. Do you need to bring this up right now, right? Like, we just got this church back to upright, and you're going to start talking about, maybe, maybe let things simmer down for a little bit before you bring this up. But I think when we're done with these two chapters, you'll understand exactly what Paul is doing here. So we're going to lay a foundation this morning that will cover us probably for about the next six or seven weeks. Uh, This is going to take us all the way to the end of June. I'm going to throw some things at you this morning through this passage that we'll come back to again and again. And I'm even thinking that we may at the very end just take an opportunity to review some of these things because I think they're so important. 
Brothers and sisters, I believe if Hope Bible Church could understand these things, I, I believe we would be a truly blessed and joyful congregation. And I, I am really excited about the potential for us understanding and applying these things. And let me also uh, offer you this disclaimer. I am preaching to you this morning the things I have discovered from this passage and from others, uh, the, the rest of the passage as, as we go through it. I'm telling you what God's word says. I am certainly not saying that I have mastered these things. Okay, so uh, I am challenged by them. I'm very challenged, and I do believe that this is going to affect some of the things we do as a family. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited about the possibility of us learning to practice these things together. Okay, all right, so that all that by way of introduction. Let's jump into the passage. I want to start at the end, okay, verses 6 through 8, because we need to answer the question, what, what is this grace that he is encouraging the Corinthians to participate in and that he is giving the example of these Macedonians? So look at verses 6 through 8. He says, I urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others your love is genuine. So what is this grace that Paul is urging the Corinthians through Titus uh, to finish? So this whole section, uh, chapters 8 and 9, is about a collection that Paul is taking for the Jerusalem church, okay? Now, a couple of things. First of all, the early church was very concerned about taking care of the needs of the poor, all right? We can even say, I think, generally from the New Testament, there were two things that the the early church took up money to support. One was to support uh, the ministry of the local church, and the other was to help the poor. And so this whole section is about caring for the needs of the poor. It's interesting to me, Paul writes in Galatians 2 that he goes up to see Peter and John and James, not James the Apostle, but James the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James. He goes up to see them to have his ministry affirmed. He says to receive the right hand of fellowship and they interview him and they're like, yes, this guy. And then he says, but... They had one thing they were concerned about, and that it was that I remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And I I just think that's so interesting that all the way back at that very beginning, these pillars of the church, you know, what's your doctrine? What do you believe about Jesus? Blah, 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 blah. But, But the thing we're really concerned about, Paul, is that you remember the poor. And he says, yeah, I was, I'm eager to do that too. And they're like, okay, good. You have the right hand of fellowship, all right? I wonder where that would fall. I mean, if we're, if we're interviewing a guy, you know, to come and, and be a pastor here at Hope one day, like, under what circumstances would we ever say, okay, everything seems great, but what do you think about helping the poor? And, but that was a huge priority to those guys. And I, I think we can argue from these two chapters, it should be a bigger priority for us too, but we'll get to that. Um, secondly, the church in Jerusalem was very poor. And that might surprise you. Like you might think that Jerusalem was sort of the Rome of that day, you know, like that was the Vatican. Uh, but, but in fact, the church in Jerusalem was extremely poor. Uh, the church was populated by pilgrims. Acts 2.5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
At Pentecost, all of these different Jews from places all over the Roman Empire, different languages, they've come together to celebrate. And that's when Peter preaches his his sermon. And all these people, thousands of people, get saved. And they're stuck. They're all there in Jerusalem. Okay, So the, the early church is populated by all these pilgrims. Why are they stuck? Because they were Jews. And they probably couldn't go home. Okay, so if you were a Jew and you put your faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you couldn't say goodbye to your family and to your synagogue and very possibly to like your whole social uh, standing because you're going to be anathema. You're going to be cursed. So many of these people probably had nowhere to go after converting to Christianity. This is why we read in Acts 2 and Acts 4 that all of these uh, collections were being taken and they were selling property because they were caring for each other. And so for a while, the rich Christians were doing the best they could to support the poor Christians, but eventually that would have run out. Okay, so there was a crisis in the Jerusalem church. Third, and just by way of note, and this will be important for the Macedonians, which we'll get to in just a minute, The Roman Empire, if you didn't live in Rome or one of the cities close by, it was not very prosperous. Like, I mean, Rome was a protection racket, so Pilate's job was to keep the peace and collect taxes. So places like Judea and Macedonia and all these places that are on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, they're not prosperous. Their resources are being taxed by Rome. That money is going back to Rome And so there's not a lot of money in these places to begin with. So just sort of file that away for like ancient Near Eastern social history or whatever. And then finally, um, there really was a famine. So we read in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now in the days, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. It's a historic event. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, here it is, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so here's what we know, and this is all background to our passage. Paul made it a point, as he's on his missionary journeys, to go around and collect money that he was going to then take back to the, the Jerusalem church to help support them. Okay, And we know that he brought this up very early to the Corinthians because in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians 16, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also uh, are, you are to do, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right, so all that to say, back when Paul came to Corinth, he said, I am collecting money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. It seems that the Corinthians started well, and then we had all this mess. And so Paul is writing... In this letter, he's saying, I sent Titus to remind you of that work that we're doing. And I, and I expect you, not, not out of command, 
but out of your own desire to carry on that work. All right? So that's the root of everything we're going to be talking about uh, over the next few weeks. That's what Paul is discussing. Now, here's where things get interesting. Uh, To encourage the Corinthians, Paul cites the example of these Macedonian Christians. All right? So just to fill in your ancient Near Eastern geography, Macedonia was just to the north of Corinth, and that had the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, among others. So those are all biblical churches. We have book, book to the Philippians, letter to the Philippians, letter to the Thessalonians. Berea is mentioned in Acts chapter 17. All right? So those are all churches in Macedonia. And Paul says at the beginning of verse 8, I, uh, chapter 8, I want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. And I have no doubt the Corinthians were challenged by their generosity. And I can assure you, we are going to be challenged by their generosity. And so I've sort of, in my mind, I've titled this series, Give Like a Macedonian. All right. And my goal at the end of this morning is that you're all going to know what that means to give like a Macedonian. Nothing that we're going to see here is normal. Okay. Some of the things we're going to see here, uh, you're going to say, nobody lives like this. And I agree. This is radical grace-based living. And I believe that Paul is describing here something that if it can capture our hearts, it, it, it carries blessing beyond what we can, we can possibly imagine. And so we're going we're gonna to start down that road uh, this week. And, and I think the key to it all is found in verse 1. So I'm going to just work through some principles in these verses. I, if you want to take notes, that great, that's great. But if you feel like you missed something, we're going we're gonna to be going over these things in different contexts over the next few weeks. Okay, So let's start with verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The Macedonians gave because of the grace of God working in them. And this is key. All right. So something amazing happened in Macedonia. They became givers in the truest sense of the word. So the gospel has taken root in their heart. And Paul can't believe it because they have such a passion Forgiving. And, and I would say that throughout the New Testament, giving is one of the evidences that God's grace has worked in somebody's life. It's an indication that somebody has moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Because Satan, the prince of the kingdom of darkness, he is inherently a taker. And Jesus Christ, as we'll see, Uh, Later on in verse 9, he is inherently a giver. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When we come into the family of God, we take on, we begin to take on that family resemblance. And and, and so our father and our brother, Jesus Christ, are givers. And so just by virtue of the fact that we are now part of the family of God, and that we are being made, made like Christ... We are becoming givers. And, and probably nowhere is this, this better illustrated than the, the wee little man, Zacchaeus. So Luke 19, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus considers Zacchaeus's change to be evidence of salvation. And so the work of Christ in his life has led itself to generosity. And so this is, this is my first, the first principle here that I, just, I want us to nail down, and that is this. Giving that pleases God is motivated by grace. Giving that pleases God is motivated by grace. It's not motivated by rules. It's not motivated by laws. It's not motivated by hypocrisy. It's not motivated by an opportunity to, to buy our way into anything. It comes from the new heart that we receive when we follow Jesus. All right, so Paul begins by saying, let me just share with you the grace that has been evident in the Macedonians. All right, number two. The Macedonians gave in spite of their suffering and deep poverty. Look at verse two. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. All right. So what makes the Macedonians even more remarkable than Zacchaeus is that they were very poor. And there's two really important things here that we could probably park on for a whole sermon, but we won't. Number one, God's grace does not alleviate their affliction, nor does his grace alleviate their poverty. Okay, so this is not any kind of prosperity gospel that we're talking about here. This is not teaching that if you give, you will become healthy and comfortable and rich. All right, Paul is commending the grace of God in the Macedonians, which continues in the midst of their affliction and their deep poverty. And so the Macedonian generosity, it has brought great blessing. They are overflowing with joy, but they're still in the midst of their their earthly affliction and suffering. And Paul says they endure deep poverty. Just understand as you're sitting here, as you're contemplating what is my situation Their situation is they don't have enough to get the things they need. Like a lot of times these days, especially where we live, we would consider poverty to be not enough to get the things we want. They don't even have enough to get the things that they need. And so the the point here is this. If you've ever thought, you know, I would like to give, but I just don't have enough money We have to be instructed by the Macedonians here because the grace of God is working in their hearts and it led them to start giving in spite of their deep poverty. This is the same as the widow in the temple. Luke 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of, their, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And it's worth noting, we don't have it recorded that Jesus told, you know, Thaddeus, run over there and tell her to take one of those copper coins out and go feed her family. That, that is not, she is, she is clearly commended. The Macedonians are clearly commended for their generosity. And, and I think what we learn from this, and this is another aside, we'll get back to some of these things. Don't ever stifle somebody's generosity. 
I, I, I don't think we should, when God has put it on somebody's heart, and, and I think this is especially true in our children, let people give. When God puts it on somebody's heart to be generous, I, I think we should support that and, and, and facilitate that and, and not stifle that because Jesus and Paul don't stifle that in, in impulse. When I counsel somebody who is in difficulty financially, and I've, I've, I've received counsel like this, I always begin by insisting that they start giving first. Because someone counseled me this way one time, and it, and it changed how I look at finances. I, I believe that that simple act of giving first can sometimes change how you see all of your possessions, no matter how much he has given you, whether it's a little, and I mean God, whether it's a little or a lot, he expects you to manage your resources in a way that you are able to give. So here's the principle out of this, out of this verse. You don't have to wait till you're rich to start giving. You can always give from what God has entrusted to you. And in fact, We'll see this some more as we go along, too. The Bible consistently teaches that poor people have a, a, a real opportunity here because they have the ability to give a greater percentage. If, if you're poor, then you have the chance to honor God even more. So let me, let me just, I mean, let's just be frank. A person who has a million dollars and gives $100,000, $100,000 is a lot of money. But he's still got $900,000, right? But a person who's got $1,000 to live on and gives $100, it's not as much money, but that's a bigger hit in, in what they actually have to manage. And, and I think that's exactly what James is saying. When he's talking about that richer brother who ought to be, uh, you know, you almost ought to be sad for that person because the poorer brother has an even greater opportunity to trust God and to depend on God. That, that's what James is talking about there, okay? So we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment. The principle is you don't have to wait till you're rich to start giving. Number three, the Macedonians overflowed with joy in their generosity. So again, verse two, for in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, who would ever put these words together? Let me just, these are the phrases, affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, overflowing with a wealth of generosity. Like who would ever think of putting those, those phrases together in a sentence? So not only were the Macedonians generous, but their, generous, their generosity was bringing them great joy. All right, so here's the well-known statement out of the mouth of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Can poor people receive that blessing? Can they be blessed in giving? Or is this only possible for the rich? And I think the Macedonians would say, you bet we can. You absolutely can be poor and be blessed from giving. And, and I would just say at this point, is it possible that the poor Macedonians understand a key to joy and happiness that most, most wealthy Christians in the United States have totally failed to understand? All right? Giving is the gateway to abundant joy. Giving is the gateway to abundant joy. 
I'm going to unpack this all over the place for the next few weeks, okay? So just, just understand this is so antithetical to our culture of self-care because we assume that those who experience great affliction and great poverty need to focus on their own needs. And we believe that the way to joy starts by having our own desires and our own needs met, and that is a lie. In fact, that is a path that will keep people miserable. So no matter what your circumstances, this joy is always available to you. You can always practice generosity. You can always share. Teenagers, the world wants you to be committed to taking care of you. And the stereotypical teenager, the ones you see in the movies, are self-centered and unhappy. The pathway to that life is to focus on yourself and what you want and what you want to have for yourself. There is a different path that leads to joy over and over again. It's a proven pathway and it's available to all of us who are in Christ Jesus. And the Macedonians discovered this truth. They were stubbornly giving in spite of their affliction and their deep poverty. True joy comes from contributing to the needs of others, which leads to number four. I'm going to keep going. Whew, I, I Listen, I, I'm telling y'all, I've been taking a pounding all week, okay? So y'all, y'all can have it this morning because I've been, I've been living with this stuff all week. Number four, verse three, the Macedonians gave beyond their ability which we would call sacrificially. The Macedonians gave sacrificially. Look at verse three. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So, okay. So first he says, they gave according to their means. All right, a couple of things here. Number one, God does not expect you to give what you don't have. So don't go into debt to give, okay? Here's another important principle that we have to understand if we're going to understand giving, and that is this. Everything we have, everything I have, everything you have, everything Hope Bible Church has together corporately has been given to us by God. All right, so the psalmist says, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Whatever we have belongs to God. That means that correct perspective here. We are all managers and stewards of what he has given us, all right? So to live according to my means, or to give according to my means, rather, requires that I manage my resources in a way that my needs are met and I am free to give as God directs me, all right? So I have to manage what God has given me to meet my needs and then to give freely, which two important thoughts here. Number one If I'm spending every dime I make, I can't give according to my means. Okay, number one. Number two, if I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, I'm not free to give according to my means because I've spent all the money God has given me plus some. All right, there's hope there. All right, if you're like, I am in debt up to my eyeballs, there is hope there as well. Okay, and we will talk about that. But for our purposes right here, as we're considering this passage, God has given every single person exactly what he intends for us to have. I can't give more than I have, but I can give from what God has entrusted to me. There's no percentage here. 
Next week, and I, I encourage you to be here, we're going to talk about tithing. All right? And I want to try to get a biblical understanding of tithing because Paul is not talking about tithing. We are talking about free will giving, and I want to ex- explain that. I think it'll be really helpful, everybody. Okay? So we're talking about free will giving motivated by grace from what God has entrusted to us. Secondly, then, and this is, this is where it starts to pinch even more, he says, they gave beyond their means. So these Macedonians who are in deep poverty, it means that they're managing the resources God has entrusted to them in a way that they're, they're not just setting aside some and taking care of their needs. They're allowing their needs to not be met so that they can give even more. All right? That's, that's what it means. They had it. They needed it. But they gave it. All right? So listen to this quote from Randy Alcorn. What does it mean to give beyond our ability? It means to push our giving beyond the point where the figures add up. It means to give when the bottom line says we shouldn't. It means to give away not just the luxuries, but also some of the necessities. It means living with the faith of the poor widow. For most of us, giving according to our means would stretch us. Giving beyond our means would break us, but it won't because we know God is faithful. So here's the question I I have to grapple with, and I would invite you to grapple with with me. Were the Macedonians being foolish to give beyond their means out of their poverty? And, And what about the widow in the temple? And many in the world would say yes, but I think Jesus and Paul would say no. And I think the underlying assumption here is that God is not going to meet those needs. And remember, all of this is causing these Macedonians to experience such overflowing joy. It it almost makes me think that Paul is saying, you guys, are you guys sure about this? No, yeah, we're sure. We're sure. They wanted to do this. The grace of God is motivating them to do this, which leads to the next point, point, verse 3, the Macedonians gave voluntarily. So look, at it says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. And like I said, we'll talk about tithing next week. There's an interesting story in Exodus when they're building the tabernacle and Moses puts out a call uh, for everybody to bring resources to build the tabernacle, Exodus 35. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, And everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting, for all its service and for the holy garments. So voluntarily, they come and they're putting in these resources to be used for the building of the tabernacle. Listen to verse 21. No, 36, 5 through 7, Exodus. The people brought so much more than enough for doing the work. So Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution to the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had sufficient, they had was sufficient for all the work and more. Can you imagine a circumstance where we would be so anxious to give and so free in our giving that somebody would have to say, stop it. We, we don't need any more, but I want to. I want to give more. We want the blessing. We want 
the overflowing joy. And you can almost picture the Macedonians like scrounging around their mud huts being like, is there anything else I can give? What else is there that I can give? And, and, and this giving, is, it's not motivated by any command. It's voluntary. It's as God's spirit moves God's people to do. So do you see, do you see how this picture has been lost in the church today? How many Christians are longing for joy and God's grace when all they need to do is just pry the things off of the things that God has given them and, and share them? So look at the next verse. The Macedonians were seeking opportunity to give. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word taking part right there, they begging for the opportunity. The word taking part is from the same root as the word koinonia, which is where we get fellowship. They are begging for the opportunity to be included in the fellowship. Please let us be a part of this fellowship. Please let us participate in this ministry. Don't leave us out. Let us contribute to the needs of others. Think about this. How many in the church today would sit back and say, well, why isn't the church meeting my needs? Huh? Think about the Macedonians. They could say, Paul, deep poverty, affliction. Why are you taking a collection for the saints in Jerusalem? We, we could use a little bit of that money right here. We're in deep poverty. Who's going to meet our needs? Instead, they're like, we want in on that. We're begging earnestly. We, we want to be a part of the fellowship. Please let us help. Oh, if God would give us the grace to have this perspective. Do you know that every single one of us in this room, if any of us make more than $35,000 a year, we are in the top 1% of the world in income. Do you know that we all live in luxury and comfort that would be beyond what a king living in a palace 300 years ago could possibly imagine? And it's startling to see that our culture, we have so much and yet we're unhappy. And I'll bet you if you went and talked to the whoever's the pastor in Macedonia, he would probably be like, I, I know what your problem is. I, I know what your problem is. You, you've lost the, the, the picture of what a joy it is to give. And the truth is, we beg people in the West within the church who are live in comfort. We beg them to serve. And then we wonder why there's a lack of joy in the church And the Macedonian church, who's living in deep affliction and deep poverty, they're begging for the opportunity to serve others. What else can I do? What else can I give? Number seven. This is the last one. (laughs) Verse five. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so these are the two final points. They're very important. He says, They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And I I just think the point here that's so important is God wants our whole lives. He doesn't need our money. He certainly doesn't want our money uh, to be in the place of our life. We're not buying his approval. 
Remember, it all belongs to God anyway. In some ways, we're not giving anything to God. We're just recognizing that it belongs to him, and we're asking him how he wants us to use it. And so, the Macedonians gave of themselves first, all of themselves, and then it says, they gave to each other. And, and I think this is, this is pretty interesting, but they gave themselves to the church. There's a sense in which we, as this local body, as we have joined together, we give ourselves to God, and our first priority then is each other. It's each other. And, and to meet the needs of one another. And yes, then out of that, to meet the needs of others. But we, we, are, we are told to make sure that, that each other is cared for. All right. I know I have thrown a ton at you this morning, and we're going to develop these things over the next few weeks. Let me summarize. Big principle. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll work our way through some more of these things. But how do we give like a Macedonian? And I would say that what I've learned and what I believe Paul to be teaching here is that the biblical model for Christian giving is that we would give generously, cheerfully, sacrificially, deliberately, and voluntarily. Don't worry, I'm not going to break all those down right now. All right? Let me tell them to you again, though. Generously, cheerfully, sacrificially, deliberately, and voluntarily. Jesus did give a command that we are not supposed to tell others what we give. But that was specifically a command to avoid hypocrisy, okay? And if you're tempted to give so that other people can see, stop that. You don't need to do that, okay? On the other hand, I think we've taken that command so far that we're afraid to talk about giving in the church at all. And it's led to generations who don't understand how to give because nobody has told them how. And nobody has showed them how. And I say all that to say, we need to disciple each other in giving. And so in the spirit of that, as we proceed over these next few weeks, I'm going to just tell you some of the things that God has taught me, not from any kind of heart of like, look at what I do or I do it right. But I just want to try to help everybody think through some of these things practically. In closing, just a few thoughts. Number one, God can uh, transform you into a Macedonian giver if you ask him. All right, And I would say at some point in my life, I prayed that prayer, God, I want to be a giver. I gave at the end of the month when nothing was left. You know, here's 10 bucks. And I had to learn how to change that. And so I asked God to help me with that, and he did. Okay, So if you're here this morning and you're like, I know, I know, I know, ah, I want to do better, ask God for help. Okay. Secondly, too, if you are in debt up to your eyeballs, there is hope for getting out of debt. It is not a forever sentence. And probably you're not in as bad a shape as you think you are, okay? Um, And we want to help you with that too. So there's help there as we go through these things, all right? Number two, the main point of these two chapters is not necessarily that you give more to hope, okay? We're going to talk about the tithe next week. We're going to talk about percentages, The people of God throughout the Bible give freely and voluntarily. All right? That being said, I have tended to use 10% as my baseline. I actually try to do like 11 or 12 just so that I'm not legalistic. Okay? Uh, But that's where I've started at times is somewhere right in there. Um, We have a set amount that we give every month to hope. 
And then we have a set amount that we set aside to give to other needs. We support two missionaries. We give regularly to adoptions. And then we also have a percentage, a larger percentage that we take from any other income that we receive. Okay, so tax returns, anything else. We have an extra percentage of that that goes automatically to a separate fund that is for giving freely, not to hope, but to people who have needs. All right, and this was a, this has become a huge joy for us. It's something that we didn't have early in our marriage, and the joy of being able to have a need and then meet it has been really, really cool for us. Okay, you should give regularly uh, to support the ministry at Hope. By the way, I don't know if you noticed. But, but Paul tells Titus at one point that they're going to come and receive that collection and take it to Jerusalem. There's some principles there. We give to the church and the leaders pray about and disperse those funds. All of that is, is true and right. But I would encourage you to begin to make a provision to be able to give freely and spontaneously as needs arise. All right? Which leads to another point, and that is this. If you don't plan to give, you won't give. So giving of what's left over doesn't work because, I I mean, it doesn't work for me because I spend it, okay? This is why I believe a budget is indispensable. If you want to be a skillful, generous giver, you need a budget. If God has put it in your heart to give, you need to prayerfully consider this is what God has given me and then plan to become a giver. And so what are you, and if you're married, a discussion with your spouse, what is it that God is leading you to give? By the way, I would say this goes for your time as well. Your time is a resource. If your schedule is full so that you don't have a spare minute, then you're not going to be able to give to others, to contribute to the needs of others. So how we manage our time and how we manage our money are connected If you're a person who can never pitch in, you're not managing your time well either. By the way, I have this theory that helping people move is the new equivalent of foot washing. Like, it's the thing nobody wants to do, right? Can you come and help me move? No, I have to write a letter today, right? But if you're that person who never has any time to help with things like that, then you're, you're not managing your time well uh, either, okay? And then, then finally this. In order for our church to fellowship in giving, we need to know each other's needs. This is kind of huge, okay? Uh, if you don't tell other people what you need, then you're depriving us of joy because we can't contribute to that. And this is actually, when I first started setting aside this money to give, it started kind of storing up because I had nowhere to give it. Nobody was letting me know. Nobody had any needs. And slowly over time, I've, I've gotten better at finding needs. Um, but this does require some measure of humility on our part to say, I need something. Because it's admitting that we're not self-sufficient to do that. So it works both ways. Not only do we need to stop clutching the things that God has given us so tight but we also need to stop pretending that we don't need anything. And so one easy way for this to work is for you to be letting the the, the leadership know your needs and then for other people to be regularly coming to the leadership and saying, do you know 
of needs. Okay? And I, I know of some needs right now. Like, I know of some spe- specific needs. And if you're sitting there this morning and you're like, I hear you, David. I want to give more, but I don't know where. I want to give within this body. Come and talk to me. And I, I can tell you of some needs that are presently uh, on the table for us. All right. We have to stop. We've done a lot. We're going to keep going. Okay, there's so much to learn. I think this is very exciting stuff. I really do think this is a pathway to joy. Uh, We're not going to get there for a couple of weeks, but let's just transition to the table. Verse 9 of this passage says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to read this in just a moment, for uh, our, our passage we read every week. This is my body, which is for you. There is no greater example of giving. Our king isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done to an infinitely greater extent. Okay, so uh, let's, let's uh, hand out the, the, the bread and the cup, and uh, we'll take these together in just a few minutes.